This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today I'm talking with Dr. Robert W. McChesney about his recent book that he co-authored with John Nichols called People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. Bertie Sanders said, John Nichols and Robert W. McChesney call us, as Tom Paine did more than two centuries ago, to turn knowledge into power. Ralph Nader said, the authors show us ways out of this dictatorial compression chamber, assuming that is, you become indignant enough. Robert McChesney is a Gooksell endowed professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. In 2002, he, he was a co-founder of Free Press, a national media reform organization. McChesney earned his Ph.D. in communications at the University of Washington, and his work concentrates on the history and political economy of communication, emphasizing the role media in democratic and capitalist societies. Mac Chesney has written or edited 27 books, and his work has been professionally translated into 33 languages. Again, we'll be talking about his recent book entitled, People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. Dr. McChesney, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. So before we dive in, what got you up for the challenge to write this book? Well, you know, I've written a bunch of books in the past, uh, and I've written several with John Nichols, my co-author on this. And our, our book before this was called Dollarocracy, uh, The Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And it was about money and politics, post-Citizens United, and how electoral politics and the whole electoral system, is the governing system of being dominated by the wealthy few. And uh, we really enjoyed writing that book. It came out in 2013. And when we were done with it, um, we wanted to do a follow-up that would take up some of the issues because we thought we left some issues unresolved in there on what was happening with American democracy. Yeah, but we, we were really having trouble finding exactly the best way to capture what we were sensing and, and seeing. Uh, and then John went to a conference in 2014, I think it would have been, uh, or maybe even early 2015 in Germany. Uh, and it was a conference for millionaires and billionaires and tech, it was a private conference in technology CEOs in Europe. And he was one of the keynote speakers. It was a small group, but uh, it was sort of an insider club. And what he was struck by is how they were all talking about, at length, uh, automation and robotics and how it was going to revolutionize the economy and how much great money there was going to be to be made by those who you know, invested in the right robots and machines and companies that would take advantage of this. And while he was there, he noticed that there was a brief mention that this is going to cause a little bit of social upheaval because there wouldn't be very many jobs in the long run for people to do. Uh, and that, of course, got John's attention immediately. And he came back and he said to me, you know, this is something we've got to start talking about. These people are serious. I mean, these are like the people who own Europe are talking like this. This isn't like uh, science fiction people. It's not UFO crowd, tinfoil hat people. It's the investors who uh, dominate European capitalism. 
And he said, they're real serious about this. They're investing real money and they're anticipating uh, automation and robotics as being the, the wave of the future worldwide relatively soon. Uh, right around the same time that John had that meeting, uh, the Davos convening in January in Switzerland took place in 2015. <clears throat> and that's where the world's leading financiers and political figures and industrialists, people like Bill Gates and that crowd get together and discuss the problems of the world as they see it, how they can better manage the world uh, to their benefit. And what was uh, striking was the keynote speaker that year was the uh, CEO of Google uh, at the time, who announced basically that the great trend in the world going forward uh, would be uh, the uh, total loss of jobs due to automation. The stuff Google was working on, the stuff that was being developed by other Silicon Valley high-tech companies was going to eliminate jobs. And that this would be the dumb, and not just normal factory jobs that could replace like robots, but the whole wave of white-collar employment, too, is going to be eliminated due to the extraordinary revolution in computing going on. And this is what drove us to write the book. So what are the political implications of this? How can we prevent uh this robotics revolution from turning into something which is a disaster for the bulk of humanity and have the benefits of automation redound to the entire population as it should in the fair, decent, and democratic society. And uh, that's the foundation of the book. So in the book, what we do is we go through to say, is it true? Is there going to be a robotics or automation revolution in the visible future that's going to fundamentally uh, undermine uh, employment in the economy. And uh, that's the first question we have to ask. And we did ask that we examine the book, and the answer is yes, indeed. It is coming. How quickly, no one can predict. Uh, But it's here. It's not uh, hypothetical at this point. And we explain how that's worked historically, why it's taking off now, what the factors are. And then we look at the political implications, and the political implications are dire because it's not exactly like capitalism is hitting on all cylinders for the last 10 or 20, 30 years. I mean, it's really in a moment of great stagnation. Unemployment, underemployment, inequality are all approaching record highs in many respects. Uh, there's not much of a future. Young people today probably face the worst labor market that, since the 1930s. And for college-educated kids, it's far worse today than it was in the 1930s because in the 1930s, there were fewer college-educated people, uh, and there generally was employment for them. So it's a dire situation, and then suddenly we're going to come in with a wave of automation and technology that's going to eliminate, uh, dramatically affect and downsize the jobs that remain. So uh, that, that was the premise of the book, and how to deal with this crisis proactively and progressively is the purpose of the book. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Tell me who's fronting, murder your sons, rape 
As I was reading the book, I, I just couldn't understand. Maybe you can help me. You know, when there is mass unemployment, why doesn't the private sector work with the government to create full employment and a living wage? Because wouldn't that pump more money into the economy and allow people to have more disposable income to buy the stuff that these companies make? I, I It's just I don't understand why they know this automation, what it's going to do, but why are they doing it? knowing that who's going to be able to afford their stuff? Well, that's a great question. Uh, why doesn't uh, why don't the owners of business and the CEOs of corporations say, hey, for this system to work, we need to think bigger than just our own naked profits? You know, capitalism encourages each individual firm or businessman or investor to maximize your returns and reduce your risk for fear that if you don't do that, your competitors are going to wipe you out. So it has a strong disciplinary mechanism. So, for example, if Company A, say Coca-Cola, decides to pay its workers more than Pepsi in third-world countries or the United States and decides to follow ecologically prudent uh, water resource usage in India, uh, it will fall behind Pepsi uh, in terms of what it costs to produce a bottle of Coke. Uh, compared to Pepsi, it will lose market share and eventually go out of business, or at least the management will get fired. So there's a tremendous display effect on companies who take care of number one and, and let someone else worry about the social consequences or the broader economic consequences. Uh, that's not your job. Your job is to make as much money as possible. And that leads, I think, to the contradictory effect uh, you're seeing, that what's rational for the individual firm, the individual capitalist, which is to uh, replace labor with machinery as much as possible, make as much make as much profit as possible. That makes when one person company does that, it makes perfect sense. It's highly rational. But when all companies pursue the same policy, it produces incredibly irrational uh, consequences for society. And that's historically through to the present day. It's in one of the weak spots of capitalism. It produces that tension or contradiction. Uh, between what's rational for the individual and what's rational for society. Now, what has happened historically is that when you've had periods of high unemployment, uh, persistent stagnation and unemployment, uh, you know, they tend to produce, and we have that in the United States and the Western world, for example, in the 1930s and into the 1940s, uh, when we had the Great Depression. And we're really, that's the only period that's comparable to what we're anticipating we're looking at going forward and we're at the beginning of now. Uh, what you tend to see are a few things going on that we're seeing in our society. On one hand, the dominant institutions, the mainstream centrist institutions, uh, lose their credibility and their efficacy. They become, uh, you know, the news media, the judicial system, the government in general, the mainstream political parties all look like they don't know what can't solve the problems and their traditional solutions aren't working. So there's a 
the discrediting of the political center, of what's called the political center, because it's failing, and the system is failing, uh, and people are desperate. And usually what you see from the 1930s, and I think we're seeing today, similarly, are two great movements uh, blossom. On one side is what's called socialism or democratic socialism, uh, uh, the effort basically to enhance democratic practices, to strengthen that, and solve the problems collectively, socially, uh, to the benefit of as many people as possible by making it a more democratic society, not a less democratic one. Uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, the, the other great growing movement that began like the 30s, and we're seeing it return today with a vengeance, is fascism, mm-hmm. uh, which is an explicitly anti-democratic movement uh, which is predicated on the idea that uh, <clears throat> that the solution to this problem is having a strong state that works closely with the private sector uh, to uh, manage the economy and manage society, and that democracy is a danger, that the great bulk of the people should be limited in their ability to have any influence in over how the society is run. And once you do that, then the proper rulers can take charge. And fascism invariably, depending on the country it's in, has a a sort of an emotional uh, brew of uh, bigotry, jingoism, hatred to rev up uh, people, to rev up support. Uh, but when you strip it down, it's always the same thing. It's uh, a militarized society working very closely with the wealthiest big businesses to dominate uh, and to crush democratic institutions. Yeah, I think there was a quote in the book that was just shocking to me. It almost felt like, they knew that this was going to happen. It was from um, Vice President Henry A. Wallace. Um, he was un- he was under FDR. He said, mm-hmm. "American fascism will not be really dangerous until there is purposeful coalition among the cartelists, the deliberate poisoners of political information, and those who stand for the type of KKK type of demagoguery." <laughs> that is almost like what's going on today in a sense because when people think about fascism they think more about just the nazis but what you're saying is that a lot of things from the 1945 are like commonplace today if you could talk a little bit more about that develop those developments yeah that's a big part of the book is that uh you know what we're seeing in the last 20 or 30 years in the united states has been for 40 years really and we go into length at this in the book has been the the collapse of what we call the democratic infrastructure, those institutions that empower people, those uh, practices that make democracy a real thing, not just a, a theoretical thing or something on a piece of paper, but actually gave power to people. And we argue this infrastructure includes having incredible news media elections that are fair and that people can actually participate in, having quality public education so uh, poor kids actually have a shot at a decent education compared to wealthy kids. Uh, all the sort of things we associate with a genuinely fair and democratic society, uh, that these things have a battle over establishing this democratic infrastructure is at the heart of having a genuine democracy. And for the last 40 years, this has been eroded in the U.S. quite consciously by the political right with the assistance of the mainstream in many respects. The whole center of gravity has moved way to the right. And that if we go back further, we see that this is a, a tension throughout American history. We write about it in the book, going back to the founding of the country. And uh, what, why the 1930s and 40s is so important for understanding what we're heading into right now in the United States and where robotics and automation and stagnation fit in is that that was a period in which uh, 
um, you know, the crisis grew to the greatest proportions imaginable. You know what hit the fans, so to speak, worldwide. And uh, in that period, what's striking, and I think I'm glad you picked up on this in the book, what was striking was that it was well understood that what the stakes were by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the U.S. president at the time, by, by leaders uh, and activists worldwide, that really the struggle was between democracy and fascism. Those were the two choices uh, facing the world. World War II was very much envisioned as a battle against fascism, the global war to defeat it, and hopefully FDR thought defeat it permanently. And he was, uh, FDR was not a perfect person. I've written, studied him, I've written histories uh, where he's played a major role. And he is a flawed person in many respects. I don't mean to lionize him, but that makes what he did in the 1940s that much more impressive because uh, he understood that in defeating, fascism was not something that was a German cult. It wasn't, see, those wacky, crazy Germans. They just can't control themselves with their guru Hitler. And once we crush them and we have the same people from the other countries can run the world again, but as long as you keep the Germans in a cage, there's no problem, uh, or the Japanese for that matter. Uh, he understood, as was obvious at the time, that fascism was a global phenomenon. There were lots of American fascists. There were Norwegian fascists. There were French fascists. And it grew out of the depressed economy and the collapse of democratic institutions and the trust in democracy. And so by the, he said the purpose of World War II is not just to make the U.S. the leading empire in the world so we can, our companies can make profits wherever we want, we can control everything. But rather, the purpose of World War II is to eliminate the threat of fascism. And when he meant eliminate the threat of fascism, he meant not just in Germany, but he meant worldwide. He meant in the United States. And in 1944, in his State of the Union address, he actually said that unless we change how we work in America, we could see the return of fascism here. Uh, the elements of fascism exist in the United States. He said the way we do that, uh, is to establish a second Bill of Rights, what he called the Economic Bill of Rights. He said our Constitution didn't go far enough. We should guarantee everyone a job at a living wage. We should guarantee education to everyone, health care to everyone. We should guarantee that every business has a right to be in a competitive market. There won't be cartels or monopolies or oligopolies, uh, the way the economy is increasingly structured then and is today. Uh, these things should be guaranteed. Only if we do strengthen these these make this into the Constitution and say this is what a free society is about, can we be certain that fascism can't come back? Uh, and there were other things in it, too. So I mean, they really were very thoughtful about it. And what we argue in the book is we need to return to that discussion. That that, that playbook still is the way to understand, uh, the way to prevent uh, a dystopian future and to actually take advantage of these extraordinary technologies uh, that are developing. So they work for us, not against us. They don't imprison us, they liberate us. We'll be right back. Price of freedom, tell me what would you pay for the wages of seeing the death, the cost of living the day. Many gotta see to believe, paint the cross in 1080p. 
picture's worth a thousand words. Hey, what more could I say? Speechless and muted. Sometimes silence is louder than the sound of a billion decibels from the crowd. The concept not conscious, but this progress is panacea. The way my content connects continents, the mass movement like Pangea, yeah. Pop told me life it is short, nothing born to fear. Either you man in the ship or you sailing back in the rear. And I quote, sink or swim is the pressure to stay afloat. Better learn to walk water, a voyage to find a boat. If I teach you to ride a dolly, your training was at the door, boy. Simply put, what you focus on, you find. Limits do not exist, they are only in your mind. Stop, Wake up. Stop sleeping, homie. And uh, again, the, the second Bill of Rights, wh why you think it wasn't adopted here? What, what actually stopped that? Or has some of it been adopted here? Well, no. It, it, you know, the only one part of it got adopted here, ironically or interesting enough, and that's the GI Bill, which basically gave returning veterans uh, free tuition and low-interest loans so to get back on their feet after the Second World War and still exist and was, I think, considered one of the great social democratic mechanisms that built the working class and middle class of this country up in the post-war era. Uh, and that was like, you know, one one thousandth of what the FDR had in mind. And that got passed by Congress as a result of his uh, proposal. Uh, the problem there was, was twofold. Uh, first of all, the people, FDR had a lot of support for his second Bill of Rights. Ironically, one of the people who supported it was uh, his Republican opponent for president in 1940, uh, Wendell Wilkie, uh, who had then worked with FDR during the Second World War and was planning to run for president against FDR in 1944 as a Republican, but he lost the nomination. Uh, but he came around to believe that you know, the, the battle against fascism was absolutely central and that this is the sort of stuff that had to be done. And, uh, and he was willing to lobby on behalf of getting this, if not passed as part of the Constitution, certainly passed into law by Congress and get Republican support. Uh, but I wrote, tragically, historically, as these things work, um, FDR uh, died uh, just a few months after giving that, you know, State of the Union or a year later uh, before the war ended. Uh, Wendell Wilkie died of a heart attack in his early 50s uh, before FDR. Uh, so the main movers and shakers who were going to push this were gone. And then perhaps most tragically, Henry Wallace, uh, FDR's vice president during his third term, uh, who was a major proponent of this and an advocate of it, uh, was not on the ticket. He was replaced by Harry Truman uh, in 1940 for the final term. So when FDR died, if he was just really a couple months into his uh, fourth term, uh, Henry Wallace did not become president, but rather Harry Truman did. And Harry Truman was decidedly conservative and disinterested in this. So uh, it got dropped pretty much like a hot potato uh, and we went on to other things. Now, what we argue is that is even though, uh, you know, the coming out of the Second World War, the sort of momentum for a second Bill of Rights failed, rhetorically it became a huge deal. It became the basis for the uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's work on the United Nations Declaration uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which then became the basis for the constitutions. And, and so a lot of what FDR talked about 
ironically, is in the constitutions of dozens and dozens of nations around the world who took it from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the late 1940s. And, uh, but it's not in our constitution, but it's in a lot of other people's constitutions. So the, the very principle, uh, though, that he was espousing of strengthening democratic institutions, uh, you know, I think there were two parts of it that, uh, FDR was, had mentioned that he believed strongly, uh, that really were controversial. One was the need for labor unions as a bulwark against fascism, having strong, independent, healthy labor movement was a clear sign in FDR's mind globally that that was something that prevented fascism. Uh, and this was anathema to the business community in the U.S., and there was a huge battle over the power of labor. And labor was really handcuffed by the late 40s. And it still had a – it couldn't be outlawed, and it is an outlaw to this day, uh, but its ability to operate was truncated with the Taft-Hartley Act, and it really became a slow defensive decline uh, over over decades. Uh, and it lost its political power to a large extent, uh, began that problem. And the other factor was that FDR made it real clear that militarism was a function of fascism, and militarism was a mechanism in a society to discipline people, to make them less critical, to make them more obedient, to make them uh, not ask questions, and that it was the enemy of democracy. And this is a longstanding democratic belief, but you know, in coming out of the Second World War, that would have, that was Henry Wallace's position that we should be working for peace to demilitarize the world. And that butted up against the people who wanted to see the U.S. become the world's global imperial power and see the growth of the Pentagon and the so-called Defense Department. Uh, and you know, that, that side won. And so that, those two elements of an anti-fascist democratic infrastructure were lost. Weaken dramatically, but a lot of the other stuff stayed. Uh, social security, uh, strong public education. Uh, there, those things still were dramatically better than they had been <clears throat> at earlier periods in American history, and were str- really were foundations for uh, that post-war era, which, in economic terms, is probably the strongest period for the American working class uh, in American history. Down with down with the shame. Carried the flag in some other men's name. Loaded my weapon and swore to them vengeance to step with aggression right into the fray. Into the haze, into the murk. Told me to prove to them what I was worth. We'll teach you to move without mercy and give you the tools to go after the causes of hurt. You'll become death. You will take breath. This is for everything you've ever loved. Use all the pain that you felt in your life as the currency. Go out and trade it for blood. You are not you. You are now us. We are the only ones that you can trust. You'll become Fear, they'll become dust. Before this moment, you didn't need much. You are the slaughtering vessel of punishment, born to do nothing but justify us. Give us your empathy, we'll give you lust. Let yourself go, my son. Time to grow up. Give up your childish obsession with questioning anything we don't tell you is irrelevant. Everything you've ever been is replaced by the metal and fire of the weapon you clutch. Can't pick up no crowns. Holding what's holding you down. Can't pick up no crowns. Holding what's holding you down. Something else that was interesting is you talked about the Trilateral Commission and what they call the crisis of democracy. Can you talk about that and what strategies emerged from the Trilateral Commission in in regards to that? Sure. You know, what's interesting, this follows a good good timing. You know, in the 1950s and 1960s, American capitalism, by relative terms, is in really good shape. 
low unemployment, growing incomes for workers. Uh, you know, it was, but you know, there was a country still that it was deeply flawed and troubled in many respects. And in the 1960s, you saw an explosion of social movements, the civil rights movement, black power movement, the women's movement came at the end of the decade, the huge student and peace movement. There was an extraordinary upheaval. We write about life in the book. Part of it stimulated by the first wave of automation and technology when people began to ask fundamental questions about what's the point of life if we don't have to work? What, we, what, is, the meaning, what is the meaningful life? The hippie movement, the bohemians of that era. Uh, it, it's a fascinating, rich period, the 1960s. And during that period, the country's center of gravity moved dramatically to what we would call the left. I mean, if, if you look at the Democratic Party platform, when I mean, George McGovern won the nomination with his dissident campaign, his uh, uh, grassroots campaign in 1972, it incorporates almost the entirety of FDR's Second Bill of Rights. It's very radical. Uh, and you know it, it you know it was a positive vision of a social democratic America uh, that was you know unlike anything that would follow it, and it had tremendous popular support. And the, the center of gravity was just well to the right. Richard Nixon, who ran against McGovern in 1972, in his acceptance speech at the Republican nominating convention, he was talking well to the left. Anything uh, Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama would have ever said uh, in their speeches. Richard Nixon, who was boasting about how much he'd increased the size of government to battle the environmental crisis. Richard Nixon, the Republican. Uh, and so there was a very different time. It was a time in which big business was probably at its lowest ebb. Ironically, this is the economy is actually cooking now. It's like very low unemployment, high standard of living. But big business, corporate America, probably is at its all-time low in terms of popularity, especially among middle-class young people, which is traditionally a constituency which is, you know, very much invested in the status quo because they're the children, the beneficiaries of the status quo. And uh, this is freaking out big business. I mean, when Ralph Nader is the number one public hero in the country by a wide margin, it's not even in a second or third place. There's only also receiving votes. Uh, big business was deeply, deeply concerned. When you went to college campus after college campus, and the you know, majority of the students identify as socialists and want to uh, nationalize big business, that's a problem. And uh, so they started, the business interest, said, we've got to win the battle of ideas. We've got to take over the country and the governments. The, the lunatics are running the asylum. And we see, and we chronicle this in the book, and we're not the only ones to do this. There, there's a rich research we could draw. We added a bit, but uh, we don't want to be claimed this is unique to our book by any stretch. Uh, but there was a uh, concerted campaign by uh, business interests to think cooperatively and think of what's good for the corporate business community as a whole uh, to basically change the terms of discussion, to delegitimize uh, the government as a positive agency, uh, to emphasize the genius of private enterprise, <clears throat> and to really change the nature of the discussion in the United States. And the Trilateral Commission was uh, uh, one of these organizations that was set up by business interests, not just political conservatives, mind you. This includes liberals uh, uh, and Democrats. Uh, but basically concerned that the inmates are running the asylum. As they put it, there was a crisis of democracy because 
when there's too much democracy, bad things happen because the proper rulers don't have enough control. And so the solution for society was to take the great bulk of the population, which has gotten suddenly interested in politics, young people, poor people, black people, uh, and tell them to go back to their couches, shut up, you know, watch television, get out of the way, don't vote, space out, tune up, be apathetic, do your traditional job, and let the traditional rulers run society, big business, so that it'll usually been the way in America. And that was their purpose. They wanted to basically lower the voter turnout, create apathy, get people apolitical, and let society be run by big business. And that was the campaign that was put in place aggressively in the 1970s. On one side, to the general public, the flip side of that was they were increasing their lobbying dramatically, their spending on politics, their takeover of the judiciary. Uh, So they controlled the government entirely, uh, both political parties. Uh, And not that they didn't have influence in both political parties and the government before that. They obviously did. But that influence grew dramatically, was tightened, and became airtight uh, after the 1970s. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Know what you are, you don't give a damn. Fathers. The change that never was. How many times can you wash your hands of the innocent's blood? Land of no love. Home where the tyranny showed the whole world America still on the wrong side of history. Not threatening Negroes in Kumbaya. Sister soldier tried to told you they want to start the race war. Obama got elected. Some called it the white lash. So this election, the white supremacy strikes back. Past 20 years, crime national decrease. But more unarmed shooting by police. Increasing white hate groups. Rose 813% just because we had one black president. Christian zealots, the media neglected to tell us, evangelicals, the felons, believe now whites are the devil, same thing in the 60s, during the civil rights, protest signs, interracial marriages, the antichrist, America spat in our faces, Trump came down and escalated, called the whole nationality rapists, this China, Muslims and niggas, and half the country said, they just tell it like it is, huh? Compulsive liar, war dodger, tax evader, three times cheater, he gon' make America greater. Billion dollar losers in the fold, misogynist, possible incest committee, you ain't got a problem with this. Christy Giuliani, Ted Nugent, Mike Pence, Roger M. Damn, even Fox has some comments. I, I just want to go back so people can really understand when you were talking about automation and what is coming. <laughs> you, you had um, a quote. You talked about um, Gil A. Pratt. He was uh, the director, program director at DARPA, and uh, you know he talked about how the next phase of the digital revolution will be comparable to the impact of the Cambrian explosion. Can you talk about what he was saying? Yeah, well, the reason I mean, to, to condense a, a lot of serious. Uh, technological and scientific discussions in a couple sentences. In effect, what's happening uh, with robotics and automation and why it's so different from any other technology before, in, in, especially in terms of how it affects the economy, is that the power and speed of computing is growing at exponential rates and has been for a long time. So what computing can do now uh, is dramatically greater than what it could do five years ago or ten years ago and will be so in a few more years. So things like a driverless automobile, which was science fiction ten years ago or 15 years ago, 
And now we've got that technology done. We can have entirely driverless cars. It's just a matter, really, of getting the politics done so we can uh, get them to dominate in the road. And it's coming. Uh, that's not a difficult technology. And that's extraordinary. I think you can have billions of vehicles driving around at high speeds run by uh, artificial intelligence in real time. So little kids running out in the street and cars. You know, just it's extraordinary what can be done. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So Gil Pratt, the person you asked about, he was the head of the robotics division at uh, the robotics division at the uh, DARPA, which is the Defense Research uh, Agency, which funds and spawns high-tech research. He was centrally involved in almost all the innovations that have created the Internet <clears throat> over the last 40 years. And Gil Pratt was in charge of the robotics uh, subsection for like 10 years, which has really been spearheading all this technology. And uh, he left uh, in the summer of 2015, and he wrote uh, a journal article about it, which is what we refer to in the book. And what Pratt said is that it's almost impossible to explain what's now being developed, and, and it's really ready to come momentarily. Uh, and he said the only way to understand the, the revolution in technology is to compare it to the Cambrian explosion. And the Cambrian explosion refers to a period roughly 500 million years ago when life on Earth underwent a quantum leap. You went really from single or small cell organisms to complex life uh, to uh, intelligent life as we know it. Uh, beginning you know, with the dinosaurs then leading eventually to mammals and, and us. And he said, you know, that process when vision came along for living creatures took place during the Cambrian explosion. In 20 million years, it, it completely changed the course of life on Earth, of evolution. It was a revolution. It was an explosion. And he said, that's what is happening now. It's going to be like the Cambrian explosion. It's so extraordinary. It's almost impossible for us to get our minds around it. You know, so he didn't compare what's happening to like the rise of television or writing or the printing press, the traditional revolutionary markers of human experience, or even language itself uh, and speech. He didn't connect it to that. He went back to the Cambrian explosion, this creation of all intelligent life on Earth and how that changed everything. He said, that's what's happening now. That's what these technologies are. They're going to be a Cambrian explosion. And we don't have any idea how they're going to affect us, except they will change everything completely. And he said, what's most important, the, the only area we can be certain they will affect directly is going to be the economy and employment, because there's going to be money to be made by deploying these technologies, and businesses will quickly adapt them uh, for profit-making reasons, and competition will force them. It won't be an option. They'll have to. And so it's not going to be a long time until we see the effects of this explosion that will start very soon. And so it, it got my attention when he said that. And uh, here's something else that came after the book came out. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in Germany, and uh, he's highly connected to German elites. And he was at a dinner, private dinner for uh, wealthy Germans. And uh, the CEO at that dinner was the, this guest speaker was the CEO of one of the largest industrial corporations in the world, which is based in Germany. And um, he, he gave a talk, and then after the talk in the question and answer period, a woman stood up and asked him if all this talk she heard about automation or robotics is true. And this is in the fall of 2015 that this conversation took place. And uh, he said, yes, it is true. Uh, he said, we have hundreds of factories around the world, uh, many here in Germany but all over the Europe and, and, and around the world. 
And we could automate all of them right now. We could eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs right now. He said the only thing that prevents us right now is politics. That would be a political disaster if we were to do that in Germany. Because he said if we did that, the middle class in Germany would burn. And, uh, you know, the political upheaval would be too great. But he said it's inevitable that it's going to happen because everyone's going to be doing that, and that's what's coming. So this is what we're looking at. This is not hypothetical. And, again, it, it sort of seems surreal, uh, but it is a, a matter uh, that's in front of us, and we've got to prepare for it. That's why hence the title of the book, People Get Ready. Yes. Below 10k, that's the amount I'm flying with. One more buck, and the Lord comes out, and the your one know about why I'm rich. I'm not rich, I'm just on the way back to the land where they need this grip. You give yours to a charity fund, I give mine to because that's sick. You see your name in the fold on the list, scared I'm involved in the cause and the pain. Lost somebody you loved in the towers and looking at me like I boarded the plane. I'm just an artist, you're not a target. No, you should argue, we all look the same. With that knowledge, I stay calm when they search for bombs or they find his grave. All in the name, I get a name that is scared with a brave. Of the land of the free, all in the name of protecting the country that's shooting its citizens dead in the streets. I used to live in Northeast DC, not too far from Capitol Hill. White House here, trap house there, they were so near you could go by feet. Never mind that, cause that's not news. Let's stay glued to the war on peace. Who gets blamed? Whoever can sway the election towards what the order seeks. We just wanna keep oil cheap, we just wanna keep motives full. What that mean? Distractions came, I think my TV's clothed in wool. Man, I swear they my phone tap. Man, I swear they watching all my moves. Since 9-11, ain't too clear just who the target is. I love my country, hate its politics. Can't just let me be. Can't just let me live. Regardless my belief, I thought Something you said in the book, which I think was very, very interesting, was something called this, there's this dangerous disconnect with activism and trying to get certain rights in regards to employment and so forth. Like um, the fight for 15, right? That's something that people want to, they want to have a living wage, you know? But there could be a, a dangerous flip side to that um, when it comes to what the corporations can do uh, if we do win that battle. Can you talk about that dangerous disconnect? Well, yeah, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> from the very beginning of the book that motivated the book was when John Nichols was at that meeting in Germany in 2015, uh, early 2015, uh, to to those industrialists in Germany. One of the places they were most excited about <clears throat> was how uh, any time that wages were to go up for low-income workers, they were not in a position to just get rid of those workers. It would be cheaper to have machines. And they specifically said, like in the United States, where you have this fight for 15, you know, as soon as, you know, fast food workers start getting $50 an hour, it'll be far more advantageous for companies just to replace them with machines, which uh, uh, can do the same job and, you know, not bellyache about wages or need vacations or need to go to the bathroom, but just do what they're told and can, uh, we can save money. And so, John said, well, even the poorest workers here are looking at, you know, their jobs are being threatened, too, not just white-collar workers. 
and you know, the most zestful people in society are the ones who are going to be victimized here too by these technologies. And you know, to some they say, "Well, then why fight for the battle for 15?" Well, that seems like a silly thing. It's, work for $2 an hour until the machines can talk to you there, too, which they will be able to. Uh, in our view, the rational response to that, and the only one, is that you should be have it as a core right in a society, the right to a job at a living wage. And if the private sector can't produce it, uh, then it should be done publicly. But people who want to work and can't or should be entitled to, and there's still plenty of work to be done. Uh, but then eventually, over time, as we need less work, the rational thing is it reduces everyone's hours. So it's not like some percentage of the population is working 68 hours a week in overtime and 50 hours a week and 40 hours a week, while large chunks of the population are sitting on their couch looking at the ceiling unemployed uh, or trying to survive. Uh, we've got to come up with solutions so that everyone reduces their hours, you know, in concert. And that uh, everyone shares in the benefits of the technological revolution. Obviously, the way it's structured right now is these uh, robots and artificial intelligence increasingly dominate our economy. The benefits are going to accrue almost entirely to the people who own the robots and the companies that produce artificial intelligence. And the workers, the ex-workers in these companies, have absolutely no gains to be found. Mm -hmm. So from all of this groundbreaking research, what surprised you the most? Uh, I was surprised at, at the... I was a skeptic about technology or automation, I should say, before I did the research. And I think most people, I've, you know, I've studied economics a long time. Even when the studies economics, uh, there's a deep bias against the idea that automation is going to eliminate all, a huge swath of jobs because there was a huge automation scare in the 1960s when computerization first came along, which you write about at some length in the book. You know, we studied it in detail, and it didn't pan out. It didn't, you know, if it did wipe out jobs, it created new ones too. So automation wasn't really the job killer it was anticipated. And my initial response uh, when John threw the book, posited the book idea and told about the stuff in Germany is this is just more of the same, that we always hear about uh, automation and computers for 50 years, 60 years, and it hasn't eliminated sectors' jobs. But this time, I think it is different, um, and I think the science, the technology, the research is pretty clear that we're at a qualitatively different level, and um, I was convinced by the evidence that we have in the book that this is this is a serious issue. It's not just science fiction. Mm -hmm. and, and lastly, I just want to ask you, what do you want the reader to mainly take away from this book? I think the importance of activism to build out democracy, that this is really um, an issue of democracy versus non-democracy. And who controls these technologies, who controls the economy, how the economy works, these are really fundamental questions that have to be in the democratic domain. They can't be left to the handful of people who own the country and own the politicians. And uh, I think that's the core lesson and that, in this book, we say this is a tension that's going on in American history from the very beginning. It goes on in every society. It's, and we can learn from the past. We can study the past. But we're also entering sort of uncharted terrain technologically. We're hitting our Cambrian explosion. So we need to have one foot strongly grounded in the past. But we've got to understand we're also going to be writing some brand, very brand new history uh, in the years, decades, and generations coming up. Well, Dr. Robert McChesney, thank you so much for coming on the show. We truly appreciate it. My, 
My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, and also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. <laughs>